This is Meaning What. I'm Matt Wiseman. I had an interview with Tamik Henderson, and going to be a couple different parts. This is the first part. We discussed New York City in the Bloomberg and Giuliani years. We discussed political awareness and how that started for us, what was happening before we really even had it throughout the 90s, the generational divide that's happening now in politics, the baby boomers and the millennials being the two target groups that people focus on and how they're different and what that means. And the Obama conundrum, his legacy now, what he's doing, where he is in history, in that identity politics angle. Enjoy. So, Tamik, welcome to the show. Thank you. Can you tell me who you are and maybe why you support Bernie? Yeah, my name is Tamik, um, native New Yorker from Brooklyn. Woohoo! And, um, like Bernie. Yes, like Bernie, exactly. And I am part of the, uh, I guess, what is now infamously called the professional class. However, I am a huge Bernie supporter. And my reason for supporting Bernie is we need systematic change in this country. Um, we are, I believe we're headed towards fascism. And I already see signs of that. Uh, you know, we both have lived in New York for a long period of time, and we've seen how, how our friends, <clears throat> you know, used to live all over Brooklyn and Queens and, and Manhattan, and how, how Manhattan has turned into, you know, a rich people's playground. And, um, and there's huge amounts of homelessness. Uh, the infrastructure in New York City isn't getting any better. Uh, so we need someone like Bernie to turn the tide. And so yeah. I'm a huge Bernie supporter. And um, on that note, just to say that New York uh, has been very important to both of us. Um, it's also kind of fomented my political identity, especially watching uh, the rise of Occupy Wall Street and, and to see progressive movements on the ground that I never really could conceive of before that. And when you were saying that this rise of inequality, do you think that under the mayorship of uh, Mayor Bloomberg uh, had a lot to do with this elite playground while we've been here? Well, you know, one of the interesting things um, is, as far as like this elite playground, and I, I think, uh, no, I think a lot of that started um, under, under Bloomberg. Um, and I think a lot of times it's, it's masked as, you know, we want to clean up the city or, you know, one of, um, uh, you know, for folks who don't know, I'm, I'm African-American and um, uh, one of the, the dog whistles is, you know, we want to crack down on crime. And, and so I think that Bloomberg was able to exploit some of these, uh, these dog whistles um, and use that as, uh, um, uh, you know, a, a, a tool to uh, implement <clears throat> a lot of these um, changes in the city, which on the surface were beautiful. You know, we had more, you know, he, he took uh, a huge um, 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 interest in, in, in cleaning up the parks and 
provided more pedestrian plazas around the city. Um, but behind the scenes, you know, he's, you know, he's given all these backroom deals. Um, 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 I mean, just, um, you know, I don't want to use like a, a, a sexual derogative, but, um, but this 429 program that gives uh, these developers um, a 20 year, 30 year tax abatement <clears throat> to build in, in what used to be um, uh, economically uh, struggling neighborhoods like Williamsburg. And a lot of that happened under, under his watch. So I think that the playground that, that Manhattan has become for the rich and, 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 um, and, and places to hide their money really happened under Bloomberg. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree there. Um, as well as you said, clean up the area. And there's something to be said of what areas he decided to clean up and make it look nicer, um, because it wasn't all of New York. It was definitely the more affluent neighborhoods that were getting uh, a, a, a nice coat of paint, so to say. Um, and, and we've seen uh, his reaction to, you know, stop and frisk, uh, his reaction to um, kind of explicit racism in, in there, and even apologize for it, uh, even though the, the NYC has, um, the NYC PD, the police department here, hasn't really apologized for it. Um, they kind of stand by that anyway. So there's opposition for that. Uh, he was an independent candidate when he ran for his third term by kind of breaking the laws. But, you know, when you have money, laws don't really apply to you. And Bloomberg's always had money. I think he was worth $6 billion when he started with the Bloomberg News Network and all this. And when he left, I think he was either twice or three times more uh, rich. So using office to enrich himself, something he also doesn't seem to be opposed to. Um, if, if I'm wrong, please call me out, but that was my impression when he was in office for the three terms, uh, as well as privatization. It's the neoliberal handbook. He, he said, I'm in charge of this. I'm going to sell it off to the highest bidder. I'm going to get somebody who's going to do something. And people praised him for it, you know, with the city bike rollout, uh, all of the, that sort of kind of thing, uh, where you're having public health officials really being happy that they're getting corporate partners or in privatization to make money off of people as opposed to investing from the state, you know, using the public office to enrich other industries. Uh, real estate has been doing that for years and years and years in New York. And as you said, um, it didn't really stop under Bloomberg. If anything, it intensified pretty significantly. And yeah, it had a, a stranglehold in all yeah. of New York. And so New York has this liberal oasis where progressives live is really kind of a misnomer of how the city operates. It's a big business city. Well, I also think New York City ha has, ha has that, I, I think New York City has that perception and I, and I think that in a lot of ways it's not, it, it, is, it, is, it is undeserved. So- Perception of being progressive? Uh, yes. So New yeah, York City- It's the professional liberal class. Right. Yes. Their kind of progressiveness, which I think is kind of meaningless, and you know, we need to distance ourselves from that as true progressives. Right. Right. So it's, it's, we're, we're, you know, what, what we're going to end up talking about, you know, because I think that New, New York City is what a lot of people that don't live in the Northeast don't understand is, you know, places like New York, Boston, 
are very uh, economically segregated. And they've been for a very long time in, in, in the Upper East Side. And, and what that means to people that don't live in New York City, the Upper East Side, I think, has the hugest uh, uh, percentage of billionaires um, in the entire country. And they live in New York City. And um, uh, David and Charles Koch, uh, David before he passed away, very, are very influential in the city. Um, they donate to most of the, uh, of the museums that we all love. So, family, yeah. so, yeah, so, so New York City is, is very, um, it's, it's very, you know, it's, uh, it's like with everything, you know, that, that there, there's nuances in these relationships and in people's um, politics, but, but New York is, the, the, our school system is the most segregated um, in the country. And, and people would not think these things when they think of New York City. Um, uh, yeah, are so, New York public schools good? Um, that's debatable, yeah. right? Uh, they are some that are magnet schools or some charter schools. I think New York is one of the first to really jump at the idea of charter schools, which is another neoliberal idea. Like, let's take public money, it's give it to private it's, it's you know, private industry to make money off of the public. And, and, and the issue, and, and the thing is, the issue is not that the schools are bad. The, the, the issue is the funding, right? Oh, so yeah. they're underfunded, so they're guaranteed to be bad. Right. So it's, yeah, it's part of the Republican playbook is defunded and defunded and defunded and then say this thing, this thing's horrible. Right. So, yeah. well, I mean, that's the, you know, we'll get into that later, but that's kind of the neoliberal playbook that came out of Clinton. All right. Um, I wanted to talk about politicians. Obviously, we're talking about politics, we're talking about local politics at the moment. Um, but let's, let's scale out a little bit. Uh, and there's a concept that I've grown up with, you know, and this is one thing I wanted to mention that I think is important about you and I, we've known each other a long time, but we're both generation Xers. And mm -hmm. so there is a particular position of generation X and people that grew up in generation X that isn't like a millennial. You know, some of us had privilege, some of us had advantages, but I, as far as I know, you and I are not part of that. And so, there is this disaffected theme that goes through the whole generation, that there was never a place for us, that we, we don't really belong anywhere. And, you know, as you said, you're a, a, a technical uh, computer programmer and security expert and a professional for that. But that comes from kind of this millennial opportunity. It comes a little later. Um, did you find trouble finding your identity before getting into computers? Um, you know, were you ever in a position where you thought that you could participate in the politics of the day and, and it mattered? Um, I know personally speaking, I, I, I felt my whole life that there was never a good option. Um, even when Bernie Sanders came around, even when Barack Obama was running, there's a lot of people that were younger than me that were celebrating, that were very hopeful. I was convinced by Obama's rhetoric, and I think that he was very good. He is a very good speaker, and he does convince me. But that's not what he did, and you know when he actually got into office. Um, so there's a couple different things that I'm trying to suss out here. But what I want to get from you right now is just what are your feelings about politics, both growing up, um, and what opportunities were afforded you, and then later on, as you saw. Clinton come and go, Bush, uh, W come and go, um, and then Obama come in. 
you know, can you talk about your political evolution? Yeah, so I, I didn't really pay attention much to politics until um, until maybe the Clinton impeachment. And I think that's, you know, it was such a big deal that I think, you know, it, it woke up a lot of people that, you know, maybe didn't pay attention too much to politics. Yeah, so, I know that um, at, a, at a time in your life, you, uh, you were born here in, in New York, in Brooklyn, um, and, but you were in Virginia for a while too and had some of your youth down there. And then you came right, back. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Was Clinton during the impeachment, was that when you were in New York or were you still in Virginia at the time? You know, give a little background on that. So I am from New York, uh, but right around the age of seven, we moved down to Virginia. And uh, my father's in the military. So I lived on military bases or, you know, just, just outside of the military base uh, most of my childhood. And we came back and forth to New York. We still had a lot of family up here. But, but a lot of my cultural identity is, is Southern, you know. So, um, so at the time of Clinton's impeachment, yes, I was living in Virginia at the time. And this is right around the time of Clarence Thomas and... You know, growing up, you know, as a preteen, you know, we saw things like 90210 on TV and Felicity. And so there were not any shows outside of... It was a little later, but yeah, I understand what you mean. <laughs> okay, okay. There were not a lot of shows outside of like um, a Cosby show that showed uh, Black people in, in, a, in a positive light or, or us at all, right? So... Like uh, Webster and then there was Benson... <laughs> Um, no, it, were, like kids, and then you were certain. No, was Webster no, where he was like adopted? A black kid was adopted by a white family. Yes, he was adopted. Right. Yeah. So, so my my point is that um, uh, when Clarence Thomas was 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 nominated for the Supreme Court, it kind of shook the country a bit, and we kind of noticed. And and I didn't really know what to make of him at the time. Um, I'm just like, okay, he's black. <laughs> you know, but I didn't know what to make of him. Uh, obviously, now I am not a fan. But sure. But at the time, when the controversy came out about Clarence Thomas, um, was there was there an awareness on your behalf, or you were just too young to kind of see that? You know, no, I, I was, no, I, I was definitely too young to see. Um, you know, I, I mean, you know, I had full Southern life. You know, Baptist church. You know, four or five times a week. You know, wow. and so yeah, so. You know, typically the, what the narrative that, that we were used to seeing is, oh, black person on TV, they did something wrong. So now what you see is you see this, this, this black person trying to um, assail to this position and then you see another black person accusing them of something. So you're like, does not compute. <laughs> and yeah, I, I remember when I was a, a young kid, um, two really big events where, well, I didn't know, I, wasn't, I was in New Hampshire, uh, Massachusetts at this time. And I remember, um, you know, so which are predominantly white suburban rural cultures. And um, uh, I knew black people, but it just wasn't a big part of the population. And so I remember seeing black people on TV and being like, oh, you know, they're different. Look at that. Um, but Rodney King was a big deal, the LA riots. And then there was the, the white Bronco with OJ Simpson. You know, and I had watched Pee Wee's Playhouse and I and I knew him from that. I wasn't really into sports. So this guy was just an actor and all of a sudden he's on the run. And then the whole defense, like that was part of our lived experience, you know, 
And I feel like before politics, that was people were in the street rioting. You know, that was part of my life as a preteen, you know. Um, it's very difficult to conceive of that even in today's standards. Like when's the last time there's been riots? But in the 90s, it was happening. And so people don't understand that, right? I mean, did, do you remember those events? I do remember those events. Um, again, you know, I think that I was, I was definitely much more innocent then. I, uh, um, we both have strong opinions on religion, and maybe we'll get into that in a different podcast. But, um, yeah. but, but, but yes, it, it, it does. It isolates you a lot. Um, I, will, I will give one funny antidote is the first time I heard NWA, okay, um, I remember uh, mentioning to my friend, well, why are they saying it about the police? I don't understand. Why, why would yeah. someone dislike the cops? <laughs> sure. I so. mean, there's the, I remember watching um, uh, the, oh, now it's going to escape me, seeing the video for 911 as a joke mm -hmm. and being like, really? I've never had to call 911, but I imagine they're there when you call. You know, just like questioning these establishments was not something that, was in my repertoire, not even something I could conceive of. But, um, you know, uh, Public Enemy was huge for a lot of people. And I remember later on, as I got um, <laughs> a little older, uh, that it was um, Doggy Style by Snoop Dogg was really important. And The Chronic by Dr. Dre. Those were the kind of crossover things that got across the country um to all like white audiences in my case so i wasn't really even aware too much i mean I was aware of onyx i was aware of of certain kind of imagery um but as far as rap reaching people you know you had vanilla ice and teenage mutant Ninja turtles 3 you know like there was pop stars but yeah you know and there was like the weasel or not the weasel um is that the the white rapper before eminem Pop goes the weasel because the weasel goes pop. Oh, I, I barely remember. Oh, yeah. And, you know, there was two live crew. And it's me so horny, right? Remember that track? Yeah, yeah. And that was right from uh, uh, from Apocalypse, not Apocalypse Now, um, Full Metal Jacket. And, 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 you know, these things went over my head immediately because I was a kid. But later right. on, I can see these things contextually. Uh, and I think context has a lot to do with meaning. And the, the contextual moment I was living in the 90s throughout the Clinton administration, I had no idea. I just was either too naive or too young to understand. Um, and now when you're looking at millennials and people like AOC getting into office, the, the next generation, the millennial generation, and then the millennials, if you want to talk after that, um, they are way more aware and, and possibly it's because of the internet than these alternative media streams that they can do this but they're they're in in social media to a degree too um but they're aware and they are able to put things in context very quickly that we had no access to doing we only had the media streams that we had we only had the environment that we were living in and so now it's very it's very open and and people are seeing, hey, the establishment, the corporate media is 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 a certain way, and the establishment is a certain way. But there are alternatives. 
And these are things that you would have to read a newspaper or pick up, you know, some kind of like socialist magazine. And then, you know, wh who, who's watching you? And then there's the Red Scare and all these kind of things. You know, there was still some of that residual. And I think even now when somebody hears socialists or communists, there's some of this residual bias against that because it was such a powerful um, disinformation campaign. You know, this, this, this kind of state-sponsored war on ideas and seeing the war on drugs kind of roll out, that war on ideas was powerful and affected people's lives in real ways. Um, and now, you know, being alive and adult and aware when the war of tenor, terror came about, I, I, you and I were both in New York during 9-11 um, and we were adults. And the, the war on terror was immediately a big question mark for me. It was a blank check that the, the administration was writing itself. Um, and so let's get back to the concept. We talk about political ideology and the, the development of people from Generation X, from this generation um, adapting to new technology, but also kind of adapting to the way politics is. I even come around 2016, and there's a lot of younger people that were all about Bernie Sanders and said, oh, he's something different, he's something new. I remembered when, you know, there was rhetoric around um, Ralph Nader. I think it was the first election I had voted in was for Ralph Nader. Uh, and that was after the Clinton administration. And it was, it was kind of the beginning of my disaffected nature towards politics and this idea that politicians lie because I had seen it. I had seen it with Bill Clinton when he ran for office and then what he was when he was in office. You know, I'd seen it with, um, you know, George W. Bush, you know, no new taxes, right? What does he do? Immediately it's new taxes. You know, he was obviously this imitation of Reagan and for the worse. Um, I'd seen it with Bill Clinton when he ran for office and then what he ended up doing. So this idea of a politician was someone who lies in public and then when he's in office enriches himself, does things that are good for him and good for his cronies and good for, you know, the elites and forgets the people. And so as a voter and as a, as a citizen in this country, I didn't feel like there was a place for me or that my vote mattered at all. Let me, let me I still voted in, 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 in presidential elections. And then, you know, um, when Bloomberg was in office, I voted uh, in, in uh, mayoral elections and in local elections, but I didn't really have any kind of awareness beyond that or any kind of sense of importance. And that kind of despair that they talk about diseases of despair now since 2008, I think that this despair is an undercurrent of the American identity. It's not just 2008. You know, when I was going to school, the schools were built for the baby boomers. You know, it's like the whole baby boomer generation had the world following them, had all our power behind them, had all of the advantages. But then half of them were left out because there was not enough room in the job market. And even to this day, what we're seeing is this big divide where the baby boomers still have a huge amount of political power. But 
now there is the millennials kind of guiding everybody under 40, including you and I, to this next generation of taking power and being participatory. Well, let, let me, let me, that's new for me. Yeah, so Why do you tell me about that? Before we before before we 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 off on on another subject. So one of the, one of the things you had brought up is um, that the Gen X didn't really have an opportunity to to really uh, to do much change. I think part of that is um, and it was a great uh, uh, NPR um, <clears throat> reporting this a couple of weeks ago, and and they were doing like a twenty twentieth um, uh, anniversary of Smells Like Teen Spirit by Nirvana. And they talked about how Gen X's were like the grunge kids and I don't really care and the jinkos, you know, and the, the skateboarders and, you know, and the dark makeup. And so I do identify somewhat with that. But, you know, one of the issues with a, a lot of these stories as a person of color is that they, they do not include people of color, indigenous people in, in, this, in this American storyline. But with that said, with that said, over well, time, the rise of hip hop, and I think hip hop, yeah. especially throughout the '80s, if you're talking West Coast, was very political and very, um, you know, after well, 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 this. Political, it, it, but then the East Coast uh, had a lot of awareness, and there was right. a Back to Africa movement. There was, um, you know, Afrocentric, and there was also like a pro woman stance with, you know, Salt and Pepper. Yeah, but it, but it was not mainstream, right? So uh, I mean, well, I got it in New Hampshire. I got it in Massachusetts. So. It, I don't know. The way that, mm, I mean, you know, there were some political things that, you know, maybe we'll get into that um, uh, as, as to why I would say it wasn't. There was a huge fight against it and to protect children and protect families and all this stuff. Oh, yeah. You I know. mean, Hillary Clinton and, um, uh, uh, you know, went on a, a high school to high school uh, yes. campaign to basically stop heavy metal satanic music. And, you know, and that, that was a thing parental advisory lyric you know sure. um, yeah they, they tried to stop the cultural progress and the cultural but, expression of many different cultures that were opposed to what they liked but but to your but to your larger point about why we didn't have the opportunities i think the opportunity to really change things i think that just has more to do with the raw numbers and so the millennials rival in terms of raw numbers um the boomers and so this is why you're seeing issues um, um, see a change, but, but, and this gets to to the point of our of, of, of our, our main subject today, is but there's gonna there's a lot of pushback, and so, you know, we're somewhere sure. the status quo versus change. That's always gonna be an issue, where you're talking about status quo doesn't want to change, and the the change candidates only want change. So let's go into some examples of this, right? So because one one of the one of the things you said is. You know, um, you know, we see uh, millennials changing things. What I mean, you can make a case for and a case against, but we're going to get into some of the, in, 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 into the ways that some of uh, the boomers are attacking this. This I think it's safe to say that we both agree this icon of change. So yeah, well, I also think that you might be wrong about the number situation, but because of technology and because the rise of technology, there's been a lot of younger people that had early access, early adapters to technology that have now ascended through new media um, to the heights of the professional class. And so it's not so much that I think the millennials have as much people, because that would be if democracy really mattered, which is another argument and you know, we'll get into later. 
but it they have more political power because they have money. The millennials have a control of a certain knowledge market. And if we are in the knowledge economy or we're post-industrial, then who's going to be in charge of the next wave of the economy? Well, it looks like it's going to be content producers. It looks like it's going to be the savvy millennials. And there's a choice. Are we going to let them have the power for the status quo, you know, the establishment? Are they going to be okay with allowing some of them into power? Or are they going to be challenged by that power? Or are they going to marginalize them? and repress them and make them feel like they're illegitimate and that even the platform or the media or the technology that they're using is illegitimate. Um, so there is this resistance to change that is real. Um, there is this resistance to millennials and new ideas that, and new power really that is, is, is real. And this is the major issue when you're talking about the status quo of the establishment versus change and the change has a new constituency and it's much younger but it's not just young okay and but I think that's what's important it has different ideals that actually run in opposition to the ideals of the establishment the neoliberals and you know when we say neoliberals we're talking about what we're talking about clintonian democrats which are basically eisenhower republicans they're interchangeable. And we're talking about the liars in politics. Well, you know, I expect the Republicans to lie. Well, I expect them to represent their constituency. I expect them to use faith and to use race baiting at this point. I, I always wanted the Democrats to be more socially conscious, more aware, and to include more people. But now that I've studied it, now that I'm gaining this additional awareness, it looks like the Democrats, especially since since McGovern, since Carter, and then definitely since uh, Clinton, have run as populists, have run as if, you know, they are champions of the people and they care about workers and poverty people and the, the poor. But in actuality, their policies when they're in office is to deregulate, give, ca give um, tax breaks to the rich and the uh, companies and privatize and defund whether it's social security or public health or public education or veterans benefits and start wars even. Um, and it used to be that the Republicans were that, and now that's what before, neoliberal Democrats are. Okay. Before we get so, too much yeah. policy. Before you talk on that, would you? Okay. Well, we're getting too much to policy. So we were going to talk about um, the Bernie bashing that's kind of happening today. Sure. Now these are, well, I, I think that the, it's important to set up the context so that people can understand what the real conflict is? Well, well, well what, what, what that's the thing is that, is that, like I said early on, is that, that these things are nuanced, right? So the same people that we are, that you and I are both ideologically opposed to, like David and, and Charles Koch, donate billions of dollars to the um, National um, Museum of History. So, um, so, you know, so it, it so it's nuanced. So I have a few like. Uh, well, it's nuanced. Are you saying by by that you're saying that these people are not all bad and that they can use their money for good, or that they are well, they're buying status so that they can have acceptable pull um, with lobbyists or with Democrats and Republicans? You no, know, I think that a lot of these are part and partial. They're not separatable I, from each other. Well, what, what is the, the uh, opposing argument? What is the opposing paradigm that you suggest as opposed to saying 
you know, that the, you know, which is my argument, is that the class of the affluent status quo is always working to uh, enrich themselves and to hold on to more power. And power is the end game um, and control. Uh, especially when you're talking about the Cokes, then you're talking about libertarians. And you're talking about people that maybe they stand for something, but it's irrelevant what they stand for because all they want is the government to be totally absent from the lives of normal people, um, which paves the way for uh, warlords. It paves the way for international companies basically controlling areas and having private militias. It's, it's, it's an awful thing, but you know, it's not out of line with something like Donald Trump. And Donald Trump actually trying to sell um, the US military for money. We will send our military aid for money. You will pay us and Saudi Arabia is paid and whatnot. Um, so it's not, ideologically, there is a, a constituency for this. There is representation for the Cokes. They can buy it because money is votes since, you know, Citizens United and the whole career of um, Mitch McConnell, you know, money is power, okay. not just for influence, it literally is votes. I, here's one example, right? And this is, you know, I don't want to go third rail, but I think that this person is a good example of you know, a word that millennials have, have coined, um, the intersection, right? So, <laughs> in, yeah, intersection, intersexuality. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. so, right. So for me, you know, being a person of color that, you know, was able to kind of squeeze out a, you know, squeeze my way into a professional class, you know, via computers, because I can kind of just study on the internet and I didn't go to Ivy League school, but I'm still kind of able to squeeze myself in there. And I know enough to where I can make a, a deep, very decent living in, in New York City, um, which is a great living anywhere else. <laughs> um, and, and this is that intersectionality, you know, where, you know, I would be considered economically a part of the professional class. However, um, my identity is definitely more with the, uh, the, the, the service industry. And, and my politics align more with them than anyone else, even though it is my economic detriment to, to, to vote like I'm, I'm part of that class. He uses Obama, right? So I'm going to say okay. that his, Obama's your third rail. His, his, yeah. So his intersectionality, you know, um, well, what I have down is his legacy versus money versus politics versus his morals. And so... So I think, you know, you know, um, when it comes to Bernie and Bernie's surge and how you have these millennials who are, are pushing things in one direction and then, and then the boomers that are trying to hold on to power, when you look at someone like Obama, who was an icon of change for a brief period of time, right? Uh, some people still believe so, and a lot of people do not. Yeah, his campaign um, definitely ran on this populist message of change we can believe in. Right. But, but um, you know, or yes, we can, you know, right. as an affront to here's, the, uh, the racists and, and the people so, that would um, disparage any kind of black man being president. That at the end of the day, these people are trying to hold on to power. So the example oh, that I'm yeah. Yeah, so they're trying to hold on to power. So what I'm saying is, so with the rise of Bernie, with the rise of Bernie, 
one of the things that, that could potentially happen is, is, you know, it could impact a person like Barack Obama's money, right? Now, if it's impacting his money and, and everyone's goal is to hold on to power, then one would think that he's going to do everything possible to ensure that someone like Bernie Sanders does not get elected. However, this, this is uh, when... This is when you get into that. Into I, I think that you're, you're the, the equivalency between the Koch brothers and their agenda versus Barack Obama and his agenda. Well, uh, well, it's a well, murky. Well, I, mean, well, I, I, I don't disagree that neoliberals' um, major goal is to hold on to power, and you could definitely say that about corporate media nowadays. Um, but to, to equate the two, it's kind of wait, not wait, the best wait. analogy. Um, you, but you know, like Hillary correct. Clinton, sure, you could say that because she's retired. Yeah, finish your thought, please. Oh, let me just make sure that I'm clear with what you're saying. Are 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 you saying that I'm I'm suggesting that Barack Obama and and the folks are the same? Well, in the sense that you're saying that the motivation of what they've done is about power and holding on to power, uh, I would say that Obama it's a little more is um, socially minded, but I think he actually believes the rhetoric uh, of you know, the, the positive change in the stock market, the neoliberal rhetoric, that is good for everyone. It's the, um, you know, Hillary Clinton made the argument that a rising tide uh, rises all boats. And, you know, she lost on that kind of idea. She lost on basically forgetting people. And, you know, Donald Trump had a similar message, a populist message, and he says, you know, we're going to lower drug prices. We're going to get everybody the best health insurance. We're going to invest in infrastructure. So these populist ideas struck a chord with the American people. And Hillary Clinton actually ignored battleground states. She didn't go to Michigan. She wasn't there in Wisconsin. So those things matter as far as not just what you say, but what you do. Okay. Um, and, and, and people believed Donald Trump, and that's why he won. And so there is a popular sentiment to blame everything on Bernie, why Clinton lost. Um, but she lost. She okay. lost. Let, let, and, let, you know, maybe Madonna and, and, um, and Jay-Z are going to have their champagne tears over it, but she lost. And so when it comes to this election, why is it different? Why is Bernie um, really an affront to these people? that are, are, are in it for influence, in it for power. Um, and maybe they believe in the rhetoric that the good market is good for everybody. Um, but Bernie is obviously very different and doesn't believe that just having a good Dow numbers or good, a good S&P 500 numbers is good for the working class or the poor. Sure. So but what I was saying about, about Obama is you made the point that at the end of the day, the goal of these people is to stay serene in power. And my point of bringing up intersectionality is to say that it's not only their goal to remain in power, because when you look at the example of someone like Barack Obama, who is, who has, who's, whose intersectionality is, and not, maybe not limited to, um, his legacy versus his politics. So his legacy is important to him. I think that there's a general consensus that's agreed on that his legacy is obviously important to him. He also, may believe in this neoliberal idea, right? Now, he does not, there is a theory that he does not want to be exposed to, you know, as, the, as that type of person, um, even though he has publicly said that 
in, at one point in time years ago, he would have been considered a moderate Republican. But, yeah. you know, most people have not seen, seen that video or, you know, or just love Obama so much that, you know, that, that gets pushed by the wayside, right? Um, because he, he has a, a much broader history and more recent history in people's minds. But his instrumentality would be, you know, the, the threat of someone like Bernie and taxes. And I think for Obama, maybe that's not, you know, number one priority, but it, it could be part of his intersexuality. And then, um, and then his legacy versus the, the belief in these neoliberal ideas versus his morals. So that's just what I have, like, as a few, you know, ideas that kind of came to mind. So when we say that at the end of the day, these people's goals to remain in power, when I say I disagree, that's what I mean. What I'm saying is that there, there is, there, there's more nuance to it. So I'm not in any way, I, I don't agree that, that, that the, all of these people, their end goal is power. Uh, it, it, is, is their end goal, it, is Trump's end goal power? Sure. Um, but do I agree to all of them? No, I, I think that is calculating. I think that it is almost cat-like. You know, if they see, if, if they smell blood in the water, okay, so I'm gonna go in. Now, if, if, if I see that this wave, right, that's coming or that we pray <laughs> is coming from, you know, this, um, um, progressives. yes, progressives from millennials, if they sense that, they will fall back, but it has to be overwhelming. And we all recognize that, or a lot of us progressives recognize that. Um, so that's how we keep these people in line. So they're not going to go scorch earth, you know, although we feel that way sometimes, they're not gonna go fully scorch earth, right? Um, in order to remain in power, they're going to test the water. Okay, let me throw this thing out on Fox News. Let me throw this, you know, this interview. Let me, let me release my, you know, my four-part documentary series like Hillary Clinton is doing, um, and, and then have this, this, this uh, interview with the, with the Hollywood Reporter um, newspaper and, and throw out this quote, because I know that I'm Hillary Clinton, and this is gonna be picked up by all of the media. And, and I think in the same sense of that, mm -hmm. someone like Barack Obama knows that he can do that as well. That the minute I open my mouth, I'm, this, 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 is going, this is going to get coverage. So, okay. So, so, so but let, one question about Barack Obama. Um, well, two. One, um, considering what he's done in office, considering the campaigns he ran, and then kind of the betrayal of his administration in how he was when he was in office. Um, and then, uh, so his actual legacy. If he, if he didn't have the identity component, you know, because there is such a thing in neoliberalism, especially in the uh, in the Democratic Party, they like to flaunt that I'm socially progressive, but I'm fiscally conservative, basically meaning my identity is important. And that's how I'm progressive, because I want to include people like myself into the realms of power. But fiscally conservative, I don't want other working class or poor people to actually have any financial power. I would broaden your um, definition just a little bit. I would broaden your definition to say that de democratic leadership flaunts the multiculturalism of the Democratic Party. Sure, but you know, in, in, in contrast to the Republican Party, but there are, you know, black Republicans, you know, that's a thing. You know, 
Ben Carson for one. Um, but and people like to say that their their stories and their identity becomes this kind of flag that they wave. Uh, and and, and especially in the case of somebody like Ben Carson, it's kind of like I'm black, so that gives me legitimacy. But the difference is, you know, do you don't think that Obama had the same kind of selling point? Is that his identity angle? Like, if he was just a white guy, you think he would have had such this cult of personality or legacy behind him? Well, I'm, 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 not, I'm not looking to necessarily debate Ben Carson. What I'm saying is I, I want to expand on what you said. I do agree with what you said about, about Democrats um, flaunt um, 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 identity, I, the identity of their electorate, and it's true. What, what, I, what I push back on a little bit is, this, is to say that what Republicans do is they don't, they don't wave it as a flag. What Republicans do is they have a few select or token minorities to hide behind their racism. So it's different. So, so like Trump with my, my, my black friend, Ben Carson? My, my black friend, right? So, yeah. so that's the difference. So it's not- <laughs> Blacks not, for Trump. <laughs> exactly. I right. don't even need to explain it. It's just funny. Why you know, so, so. One last thing. Uh, if you noticed, Tamik was talking about millennials having a greater portion of the population. Uh, that's true. I was wrong um, in their height. The baby boomers were about 77 million and, you know, they've decreased since then, gotten much older and millennials are about 83, 83 and a half million people. So he's right. They have the numbers. Doesn't negate my argument that they also have uh, economic control or um, they're sharing the same economic market. And sometimes they have a lion's share of that and they have different values. All right. Just want to make the record clear. That was the first part of a three-part series with Tamik Henderson. We, please continue. Uh, we are discussing Bernie Sanders in the next section. Um, we get into a lot of things. Uh, we covered in this one the the Bloomberg years in New York City, growing up in the 90s and being from the Generation X, the generational divide, and identity politics, especially concerning Obama. If you liked it, great. Um, please subscribe, give it a like, tell your friends. Uh, if you have anything to say to me, if you want to do anything, I will um, include a link or you can send a, a email to me at meaningwhat.com radio at gmail.com all right that's meaning what radio at gmail.com thank you again and i'll see you later